We took, you know, really simple technologies, turned those into protocols and managed to build a system that everybody relies on. Uh, at the core, the decisions that were made back then, you know, we still live with a lot of them. You know, the elegance of that is just really interesting to me, you know, that it's been able to sort of survive all these different things that have happened in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and, and what we're going through right now, so. Hello, and welcome to Talking Email with Postmark. I'm your host, Merrick Loader, and in today's episode, Andrew Taken, the software architect for Postmark, and Chris Nagel, the CTO of Wildbit, Postmark's parent company, will discuss how SMTP, the protocol that powers email, came into being, and explore how the protocol has evolved to keep up with the demands of modern users. In sharing this history, we hope that you'll come away with a newfound appreciation the next time that you open your inbox. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Let's start with some quick intros. Chris is founder and CTO of Wildbit and Postmark. Uh, you've been in the business of sending email for, I guess, almost 10 years. How did that come to be? Actually, I was just looking and it's been closer to 16 years, which is really crazy um, and kind of s- scary as well. Our or my email experience comes from Newsberry, which is one of our first products that we launched at Wildbit. We were still doing consulting at the time, and we had a bunch of uh, clients who wanted to send out email newsletters, but didn't really have a tool to do that, didn't have a way to do it. So we came up with the idea of, you know, let's throw together a product so our customers could do this. And, and Newsberry came out of, out of that. It was more of an email marketing tool like MailChimp or Campaign Monitor. And in the process, we learned a ton, um, everything from being listed on spam house and dealing with uh, getting off of blacklists to, you know, we were actually one of the first providers to implement SPF and domain keys, which are, you know, really important standards these days to fight against spam and email spoofing. But since then, you know, Newsberry is no longer a product. Uh, We shut it down in in 2012, but it's really what gave us the, the knowledge and the confidence to to build Postmark back in, in 2009 and 2010. And what's interesting is even today, Postmark is still in .NET, which Newsberry was originally implemented in. So we, we even took some of the code base and some of the tools that we built in Newsberry to build Postmark. So just to be clear, you, you folks literally on a whim said, hey, let's design an email marketing solution. And did you have any real experience with that? Or was Newsberry just, that was, that's where it began, where you just said, hey, let's figure this out? I think when you're doing client services, the thing everybody wants to do is build a product because it's repeatable income. You're not always chasing after the next client. And we had ended up building an internal tool for some of our customers. So we had something that was already there and already working. And we were able to use that as a base to build a subscriber or um, SaaS product, you know, before SaaS was a thing. Gotcha. Um, and Andrew, tell us about your path to, to software development and uh, how you landed at Postmark. I spent a lot of time, maybe a wasted youth playing with computers and, and growing up on, on BBSs and AOL and everything. And uh, when, I got, when I got into college, I, uh, I worked and I was working as sort of like a sysadmin at, uh, at the university I went to. Um, and that, you know, that paid quite a bit better than, than other jobs at that time. And so that was, that was sort of like the thing I was doing while I was going to school. When I graduated, I ended up uh, working at a company and I was split responsibilities between a few different things, but, but a major part of it was IT administration. Um, we managed exchange servers and, and, you know, Windows networks and NAS storage units and, and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And I ended up almost on a whim uh, building out a couple of uh, small software projects to, to support the small business. And that was uh, ultimately uh, way more enjoyable. I think, I think um, it's interesting what, what Chris said about, uh, you know, what you chase when you're a small business or like, you know, what part of the equation you're on in terms of, you know, running after client work or building something that creates revenue. I think it's similar in building software is that um, you're sort of like on the more creative side and a little bit more control over your destiny. So that 
that was more enjoyable to me, especially uh, compared to managing Exchange servers, which uh, which most if you manage Exchange, I pray for you. So, at, at some rate, horrible stories of how we used to send email at Newsberry, but I'm not going to get yeah. into that. <laughs> um, maybe we, maybe we should get into it. So so at any rate, um, you know that that progressed, and and ultimately I kind of shifted away from doing uh, more of the IT administrative work and and more into. Um, pure software development. And, you know, I worked at a couple different places. I did some open source work. And ultimately, that was, I think, how I got introduced to Wildbit and Postmark with someone on the Postmark team had used open source work that I had done and uh, created an introduction. And, and, you know, that was about five years ago. And it's it's been really nice to be part of this team working on this product. So, so Chris, this this guy came knocking and and you uh, you opened the door for him, huh? <laughs> Over the years, we've used various databases to store all of the email that we send so you can search it in your activity. And one of the systems we used was MongoDB. And we had a lot of trouble, trouble with it. But one of the things that we had used consistently and that worked really well was this open source library to interact with MongoDB. Hmm. And uh, that's what Andrew had written. Um, well, I'd like to thank both of you guys for for being on here with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to give our listeners a bit of context. Um, in preparation for this episode, I'd actually asked Andrew to provide a, a list of topics that he'd be most interested to to talk about on this podcast. And he quickly landed on this topic of telling the history of SMTP and how it came into being and how it's evolved over time and what the future might look like. Andrew. Some folks might see this as being a, a somewhat dry topic, but but not you. Um, what what about the history of SMTP and email in general uh, tends to get you excited? Well, I'm glad that you at least raised the uh, elephant in the room. I guess that it, it could potentially be a little bit dry. But um, so I've been working, uh, like I said, on Postmark for about five years, and um, you know did a lot of IT management and other stuff. Um, prior to, you know, my software development career, I guess. And something that's always been super interesting to me is how we took, you know, really simple technologies, you know, ASCII text, turn those into protocols and manage to build a system that everybody relies on. You know, ultimately it's evolved over, you know, 40 years plus, but uh, at the core, the decisions that were made back then, you know, we still live with a lot of them. Um, some of them were really good. Some of them were, you know, continuing to expand email to try and fix um, or to try and address the, you know, the, the new types of problems that have come up. But, but to me, there's something about, you know, a system that is, you know, simple mail transfer protocol, for example, that, you know, the elegance of that is just really interesting to me, you know, that it's been able to sort of survive all of these different things that have happened in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and, and what we're going through right now. So. Andrew, you want to just give us a, a quick overview of how SMTP came to be in the first place? I, I, I did not graduate from college in, in 1982, so I wasn't there, but I'll, I'll try and at least give a little bit of uh, the story as I understand it, which is uh, that, that essentially, you know, we're all familiar with ARPANET and a lot of the academic research uh, that gets talked about in the lore of the internet. And, uh, you know, there was this idea of, you know, email floating around that people were, had started to build out. And uh, they were passing messages around between, between servers, you know, probably late 70s, early 80s. And uh, two people wrote what were called RFCs. These are re- requests for comment uh, documents, which essentially outline the specs that the internet uses to work, right? This is how you know, different servers written by different people can communicate. So HTTP servers, mail servers, that kind of thing. So they, the joke is sort of that um, uh, David Crocker and Jonathan Postal sort of wrote down what they did to make mail work. And that became the standard by which, you know, everything else has been built up after it. You know, there wasn't really any, any idea about security built in. There wasn't uh, any idea of including images or that sort of thing. It was really, you know, a basic, like, let's get this out here so that people can start building, you know, mail servers, you know, themselves, and we can make this available to a broader audience. I I think for those who who may be listening, who aren't necessarily familiar with 
this this whole kind of process with respect to building a you know a document request for comment can you just give me give me a quick overview of you know what is that process i mean it's basically is this basically where any developer can you know kind of throw something out there and say hey this is something that i've built this is something i'm working on that i'd like to get peer reviewed is that is that really what's going on there it is in a general sense uh Basically, RFCs are managed by an organization called the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force. And so that's that's a, sort of a, a bunch of people working together to try and come up with solutions to a lot of the major problems to build the Internet. So um, it's coming up with how we're going to roll out IPv6, which is sort of like the next version of the Internet that may or may not ever come, if anybody's familiar with it. Um, or... Um, you know, also how, how we're going to deal with uh, new versions of HTTP, which have been, you know, we've had HTTP, HTTP2, those sorts of things. So that organization will essentially assign you an, like an RFC number, and uh, that, that later can be, you know, converted into a document that describes a proposal and, and a specification uh, that can be used to build out services. And to your point, Merrick, uh, it is a peer-reviewed process, uh, and, it, and there's actually a lot of work that happens in, in committees at IETF and with other internet organizations to make all of that work. Um, but ultimately, the goal is to have a document that's you know pretty close to the standard. Of course, mistakes are made, and you end up with many revisions later <laughs> on, new RFCs that that sort of add things or fix you know, problems that weren't obvious, you know, and so there's errata documents and those sorts of things. But um, that's the basic premise of how you know, a lot of this stuff comes out and, you know, to build the internet. So like any, you know, paper or speech, you know, as a first draft, there, there are obviously things that uh, you leave out or things that need to be revised. I imagine with RFC 821 or 822 that there were, there were plenty of limitations. Do you want to speak to some of those, Andrew? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, it's interesting because it, it, my my wife's in academia, and you know, a lot of that work is based on how many times your your publications get referenced. And RFC eight twenty one, eight twenty two are referenced by everything all the time. They're just kind of like, if you want to go to the source of truth, that's where you start. But they were they were written at a time, like I said, they were sort of written to describe something that had already been built, rather than sort of you know, from whole cloth, you know, designing something and then seeing if you could build it, you know, which it, which has pluses and minuses. But I think one of the minuses probably historically is that it, it doesn't address things like security, right? So like we're, we're on an internet where, you know, everybody trusts everybody else, you know, everybody else on this network at this point. Um, but as soon as we start having, you know, especially once you get into the internet being available to a lot of people that becomes a massive problem around spam that uh, and phishing and all of the things that sure. we're dealing with. So um, just right off the start, that was sort of what I would say is probably the most glaring omission or something that we've been dealing with ever since. But um, the other thing that, uh, you know, at that time it was built around, uh, you know, ASCII text. So this is like a basic Latin alphabet. So it's very hard to describe, you know, text and other languages in SMTP as it sits. So we had to build things onto it to support internationalization and, and allow, you know, non-English or non-Latin based languages to kind of communicate with this protocol. And, and ultimately, uh, computers became more powerful and, you know, the wider audience wanted to add more stuff like cat GIFs. And so, you know, the protocol had to be able to support you know, including those things in your in your email so that somebody could get a laugh if you sent it to them or, you know, including uh, calendar parts so that you could, you know, schedule a really important business meeting with, with uh, you know, your boss every week or whatever it is. So, so those are a couple of things that the original RFCs left room for, but there were a lot of revisions later that, that built on top of that initial technology and made it, made it work for those cases. Certainly a lot there, and I want to explore that, Andrew. Um, we're, we're definitely going to dive into the security piece in a moment. But one thing I'd like to understand is this this notion of building onto the original spec. Do you want to just give me a, a quick walkthrough of what that process would look like? Well, I think you know one of the nice things about RFCs and um, and the work that you know a lot of these organizations do is that um, 
if you're willing to to commit the time, you you can be part of it. Like there's no there's nothing that says because you don't have this specific type of degree or this specific background that you're allowed to write about uh, a problem that needs to be solved on the internet. So the RFCs can come from a lot of different places. Uh, one of the main places that they come from and, and something that we're involved in is that there are, you know, different working groups out there for different, you know, problems that the internet is facing essentially. So like people that want to deal with sort of the web standards and how, how those things get rendered or deal with the abuse problems with email and how, how to mitigate those problems. Uh, a lot of these things will come up in those working groups and turn into uh, an effort to, to, you know, maybe between one or two people to kind of look at that problem and see if there's a solution to it or propose some solutions. Um, and those will get discussed, um, you know, sort of in smaller groups, and then they'll start to grow until they become something that um, maybe the ITF or one of these other organizations is going to say, all right, we have something to say about this problem. So um, there's a there's a lot of different paths that, that that can, you know, those things can become standards or, or RFCs rather. And it is, uh, it's really a lot of it just has to do with, do you see a problem and do you think you have a, a, a way to contribute, you know, and, and sort of deciding to be involved. So just to, add even a bit more context, you know, something like multimedia computing. I mean, that's, that's something that it would allow, you know, people to, to start to include things like those cat gifts that you, that you'd mentioned. I mean, is that, is that a working group that comes together and puts that together or how does that come to be? Well, first Merrick, it's not, a, I don't know what a GIF is. I know what a GIF is, but, um, <laughs> but uh, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole on this one. There's an RFC about whether it should be GIF or GIF, but, um, <laughs> I, I know which one is correct, and I and I think I know your question there. I, I, it's a it's a lot of different places that these things are coming from. So you know, companies also have an interest in in making sure that um, that they they have a compelling product for their for their customers, right? So so like there's there's people at large ISPs that that you know the names of that are actively involved in writing these these specs. Um, and, and sometimes that's good. And sometimes that may not be good. I, I think, uh, most of the time the intentions are good, um, in writing the specs. And it really is about helping people get more access and more out of, uh, the technology, you know, so. Uh, when it comes to email evolving and RFCs changing, I, I always thought one really interesting part was the, support of emojis in email and um, how how the, the support for different characters has, has evolved in email over time. And I, I don't know exactly how it came to be or where the pressure came from, but I imagine something like emoji support came more from the, the people using email than it did from the people uh, writing the RFCs and creating email. And I, I, again, I don't know exactly, you know, the pressures or the forces that did that. But it's always interesting to see how a protocol like something like SMTP evolves over time and, and where these things, um, where the pressure happens and where, where the support comes in. I remember in, in Postmark, emojis were something that we had in our, our backlog. It was like something that we wanted to get to. And we had to write support for it in the product. But we kind of fought it because we had other more important things to deal with. And, you know, it's just emojis in subject lines or whatever. So who cares? And it turned out that customers really, really wanted emojis <laughs> in Postmark. So uh, it was interesting to see how like that, you know, our, our customers and our customers' recipients and our customers' customers influenced that change and made that happen. And I imagine some of the RFCs changed in the same way. Yeah. So, I, I mean... As someone who worked very closely with the emoji support in, in Postmark, I'm happy to talk about that a little bit. And it did actually go back again. Um, these are these are documents that we really care about to to get to this. Um, there's one called RFC 2047, 2047, and it outlines a process that you can include non-ASCII text in the headers of emails. Okay, so if you know if you remember from a little bit earlier, I mentioned you know, SMTP being a pure ASCII, you know, protocol didn't have this support for like extended characters or for, you know, for internationalization and those sorts of things. Um, and in fact, 
you know, the character sets we use commonly today didn't even exist. And so, you know, RFC 2047 uh, was put out there to give, give a, a path forward where we could include these extra, you know, characters or different characters from that base set of characters that we have in, in ASCII. And, uh, you know, so that, that enabled like more important, you know, arguably more important things like getting people's names right, putting the umlaut where it's supposed to be, or, um, you know, using an NYA instead of an N, you know, those sorts of things. Um, but it worked out that that was a, a path that we could put uh, Unicode text, which is fairly ubiquitous at this point, and really where emojis came in. Emojis got added to Unicode. Arguably, you know, people think we're adding too many or we're not adding the right ones or, or whatever it is. But ultimately, that basic uh, spec that allowed us to encode that information in headers uh, create a path where we could start to include, you know, these additional characters and, and really uh, create sort of a new way for people to interact with email. I mean, it's funny sitting here kind of listening to you talk about these new standards that start to, to emerge. In my head, I'm kind of imagining somebody, you know, looking at a paper and just clicking the delete button and deleting and then, you know, writing something new or, or adding a new paragraph. I mean, I guess one of the things that I would imagine is quite difficult when you're making changes to uh, a standard that has actually been adopted and being used in software around the world, that these changes are, are quite complex. I, I, I just have to imagine that's the case. I mean, is it extremely difficult to, to make those changes? I mean, as an ESP ourselves, I'm just imagine thinking through like how we then, at, you know, incorporate those new changes. Is that a difficult process? Chris? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So even if the change happens with ISPs like Gmail or Yahoo or someone else, or even in the RFC, it still has to be implemented in, in the software. Right. So you have, you know, open source mail servers like Postfix or you know, in Postmark in our code base, like we have to actually catch up to support these things, whether it's in open source libraries, we use open source software or, you know, the custom software that we've written. And, you know, the, the emoji stuff was a good example of that, but so is, um, you know, UTF-8 support in, in SMTP. And it's something that has been decided on or, and, and has large support from ISPs and other software vendors but now it's going to take a long time to be implemented because there are so many pieces of software that it touches, whether it's you know custom software that different products have written like us or open source software that exists that a lot of people use. So it's just one of those examples as as the protocol and you know the RFCs evolve, um, it actually takes a long time for the adoption of it to kind of trickle down to all of the different people and uh, services that use it. So what you guys are describing really sounds like an evolutionary process, like a, a new trait emerges, and then that trait kind of prol proliferates uh, through the ISPs, the ESPs, and it has to effectively gain the, the adoption of the industry to really make, make an impact. I, I guess on the flip side of that, going back to high school biology, I mean, I imagine there may be some things that also die off. Are there pieces of the standard or are there things that ultimately lose support and eventually get written out of a spec? Yeah, I, I think that there are. And uh, I wouldn't say that they necessarily get written out of a spec, but they uh, sort of get overcome by other, uh, you know, by better or more comprehensive solutions. So Chris mentioned one, which is SMTP UTF-8, which is essentially like saying, rather than this being an ASCII protocol, it's going to become a UTF-8 protocol. And now we, all these things that we did, you know, how we're going to encode stuff in, in subject headers or, you know, the, the, any of that work basically can start to go away because we don't have to like re-encode it to fix it, to get it into that, you know, shoehorn it into, into a narrower uh, set of characters. So, you know, ultimately once that particular protocol is out there and, and, and adopted widely, hopefully you can get rid of some of those, those things that you did to kind of evolve you into that, right? Now, in that same example for SMTP UTF-8, you know, one of the things that uh, it supports that, as far to my knowledge, none of the previous RFCs did, is actual Unicode in the email address itself, okay? So 
you can have Unicode on the display name, or you can have Unicode in 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 the subject line, that sort of thing. But the mailbox itself still has to be ASCII, okay? And there's reasons for that. There's reasons like way beyond mail. Like if I'm writing these into a folder that is on a file system that doesn't support UTF-8 file names, I can't deliver that, that mail, right. right? And so you're dealing with, you know, at least hundreds of thousands of servers out on the internet and probably millions that are gonna eventually have to be upgraded. And there's there's a lot of other work to be done that isn't supporting that particular thing. So a lot of the adoption here just takes a long time um, just due to the fact that you, you're waiting for everybody to you know upgrade the thing that they don't even wanna log into. I mean, it's fascinating because you, I mean, you think about it, it's just software, right? So you can always change it. You can always make modifications and, you know, just release it or publish the latest update. But at the end of the day, what you're describing, it's like the United States Postal Service saying, hey, we need to add new numbers to addresses, right? I mean, all of a sudden now this is a system that's in use. It's widely adopted. And to make a change like that is actually quite significant. Yeah, I I think that's a, that's actually, we kind of stumbled into a great analogy there, which is. Uh, the same thing that happened sort of with with phone numbers where you had a system in place, but then there were enough people using it that you needed to be bigger. And so you added area codes. And that's in a lot of ways, if you look at how SMTP has evolved, that's exactly the same idea is that how can we paint on an additional layer that isn't going to break the existing system, but it allows more people access to it or better access to it. And, and so, yeah, I think that's a uh, the postal service or the phone phone service are both great examples of that. Another interesting piece to that is that some standards are introduced and whoever wrote the RFCs or who is behind them really wants to, them to get adoption, but in some cases they don't. So, uh, Or it just takes a very, very long time to get adoption and they may end up taking so long that it actually ends up getting replaced by something else. So, uh, you know, a good example of that, and, and we can get into more detail later, but is, is sender ID and, and SPF, and they're two kind of competing standards that uh, were introduced, and, and one ended up kind of replacing the other, and how it was adopted really changed, you know, what became the permanent standard. SPF and sender ID, I mean, these are basically security-related functionalities, correct, Chris? Yes. Right. So, circling back, to one of the key limitations that Andrew had brought up is the gaps in security. SMTP emerged in a time where the internet was a safe space to play and there weren't really very many bad actors, but of course, humanity came into the picture and and, uh, a lot of kind of negative uses uh, started to emerge. Chris, do you want to first start with kind of what some of those key gaps were with respect to security? Yeah, I think if if you look at email... The amazing thing about it is that it's so open. All you need to do is set up a server on the internet with a, a mail server and you can you know, receive and send and relay email. It's, it's very open and, and easy to use. That's also the worst part about it. So a lot of the, the things we hate about email, spam and spoofing and you know, all this stuff is, is because it's so open and easy to use. So I think email in general, when it comes to security and, and compliance and the, the problems around it, it's it's really evolved in, in two categories. And the one I look at is, you know, the security aspects of it, but the other is trust and maybe the, the abuse handling of email. So on the security side, uh, as Andrew mentioned earlier, in the beginning, email was just sent over plain text. And what that means is that if someone was looking over the network as messages were being passed back and forth, you could actually inspect the messages themselves and, and read it in plain text. So to combat that, um, you know, TLS was, or at first SSL and then TLS was introduced to actually make it so mail servers talking to each other could encrypt the communication between them. Very similar to, to what we expect these days on a browser. So communicating with a website. And again, getting back to standards and adoption and all that stuff, the, the interesting part is even today, when TLS has been um, out there for so long, there are still many, many servers that don't support it or don't have it enabled. So we have to have actually like a, a backwards compatibility or a fallback where yeah. if an email is sent 
it's called opportunistic TLS. So if an email is sent to a server, we try to connect to it using TLS to encrypt the message. But if TLS is not accepted on the, uh, the remote mail server, we'll actually default to sending it over plain text. And it's that decision sometimes you have to make of, you know, should we just drop the message or should we send it through? So that's, that's like one of the big introductions when it comes to security in an email that's, that's changed over the years. The other side of it, which I think has evolved and changed uh, even more dramatically, is handling spoofing, spam, uh, and abuse. And, you know, to me, that really comes down to trust. How do you build trust in email? So when people are sending messages back and forth, they can, you know, both protect uh, their own inbox, but also have trust that the emails they're receiving are legitimate and who they're, they say they're from. That's evolved in, in a long history. And I, I've been able, you know, over 16 years to, to watch quite a bit of it. So I, I think, Chris, one of the interesting things that you, you pointed at there was that TLS was layered on to email and kind of going back to other parts of this conversation. What we have right now is not actually the thing that we started out doing to get that encryption, right? We started by wrapping SMTP and putting it on a different port other than port 25. Um, we put it on, if I recall correctly, port 465. So in doing that, that requires an additional step of coordination between all the servers on the internet to get that working. And ultimately, maybe it wasn't, you know, it wasn't getting adopted for that reason. Um, so we instead another RFC allowed SMTP to be extended, and that gave us a way to do it on port 25, which is what all the servers know how to talk to, and to opt in it in a sort of a more proactive way in a more compatible way. So it's just another example where, you know, you're dealing with this huge infrastructure and you've got to find a way to get, you know, some of the stuff that you wish you had, but not break everything else. That's a great point because there's, uh, you mentioned, I think it was port 465, was it? Um, and then there's port 587 and there's, there's actually two sides of it. Right now we're talking a lot about mail going between two servers, but there's also protocols like uh, POP and IMAP which originally popped to, to actually retrieve your email from a, from a server to download your, your inbox. That was not over, you know, secure connection as well. So, um, uh, you know, security has evolved a lot in SMTP over the years. So it sounds like there are really kind of two sides of the fence here with respect to security, right? There's, there's kind of the trust amongst people who are doing the sending and receiving. And obviously, then on the flip side of that, there's the actual security of the, the email kind of in transit and the encryption of the email as it goes from one destination to another. Chris, I don't know which, which of those two paths you want to go down, but I'd certainly love to, to kind of explore both of those uh, further. Yeah, I think to me, the interesting one has been kind of the, the trust uh, abuse side of things, because when we launched Newsberry, Back then, the, the main method people had to handle abuse, like spam coming into inboxes, was through blacklists. And since then, it's evolved you know, quite dramatically. So back then, you had blacklist providers like Sorbs and Spam House and a whole bunch of others that people could subscribe to. And IP addresses would get listed on these blacklists for you know, people who were sending spam or, or bad email. And then ISPs like you know AOL and Yahoo would would also subscribe to these blacklists or even keep create their own blacklists uh, for whoever was sending bad email. It was all IP address based, and the issue with that was IPs are something that you can switch easily, and it doesn't really have an identity. So IP addresses belong to um, an ISP or like a larger organization. You might have thousands of IP addresses. So some like a spammer or even, you know, someone sending email, a company might have an IP address, but they, the next day they could change providers and have a different one. So it became this problem where it was, it was like a, you know, whack-a-mole where they're always trying to find the new IP address to identify spam or, or even good email. And the, the other problem with it is that the, the sender, like us as a company, we didn't have any control over who could send email on our behalf. We couldn't control 
you know, how we wanted email to be sent from our own domains. So as all this stuff was evolving, uh, a new kind of standard came out. And this is what I was talking about earlier. There were kind of conflicting standards. One was called sender ID and the other was called um, SPF or sender policy framework. And the idea behind this was that instead of instead of having a list of you know bad IP addresses uh, that exist on the internet, or maybe in addition to, I could say as Wildbit or as Postmark or you know an organization like Walmart could say, here are the IP addresses that we send email from. Only receive email from these IP addresses. So then, it, it, what it did is it actually switched the control from you know, trying to stop it at the receiving end to allowing the sender to have control who can send email on their behalf. And that was kind of the beginning of, of moving, moving the control and the trust into the sender's hands. I do think one kind of interesting thing about the differences between, you know, when we talk about security here is that one is to address privacy and that's more the TLS part of things. And the other is to address what I would call authenticity, right? So so anybody can connect to any server using TLS and have a private connection, but that doesn't uh, say anything interesting about whether or not the person trying to give you the mail is allowed to do it. And I think a lot of the, the standards that we've seen and really where a lot of the interesting and difficult work is in trying to prove that authenticity and, and that authentication, uh, rather authorization outside of you know, any predetermined uh, agreement about it where, you know, different servers who don't know each other can say, all right, with some level of confidence, I think that you're allowed to give me this mail and it's from who you say it's from. That is one of my, like, very interesting part of this problem to me. Andrew, I think that's a, a really good distinction. So, you know, getting back to something like sender ID and SPF is where we get into the authenticity of, of a message being sent. And the way, Marek, you asked about the difference between sender ID and SPF and, and how that evolved, sender ID and SPF are, are based on the domain. So if I'm sending from wildbit.com, I can say, here are the IP addresses where I send email from. And sender ID thought that the domain in question should be the from address that the email comes from. And then SPF had a slight distinction on, well, we think it should be the mail from address. And if, if uh, you know anything about email headers, there's a mail from and a from, and the mail from is, is more like the bounce address, and then the from address is the one that shows up in the email client. And I'm not sure exactly how it evolved and you know, how one ended up becoming implemented over another. But what ended up happening is SPF is actually based on the mail from header, which is what people primarily use for bounce addresses. And it kind of works out because the the mail from is most likely, in most cases, the same as the from address, unless you're using something like Postmark or uh, email service provider, where it, which is where it got kind of tricky. Um, and that's like one of the evolutions of a standard and, and you know how it changed. And again, I'm not sure exactly how one became more prevalent than the other. Well, I mean, just the one interesting thing about that is I believe sender ID was mostly, uh, I think it was mostly pushed by Outlook and Microsoft. Um, yes. I don't know if that's right, Chris. Yeah. So it's interesting that that's not the one that won, even though Microsoft's an 800 pound gorilla that ultimately, you know, there were reasons to pick SPF and that's pretty much what's adopted on the internet now. Um, so, you know, it is kind of back to what we've been talking about for a while. It does kind of show that there is some low, that, uh, trust the process, you know, like, like there is some level of, of pushback, um, even if it is Microsoft or Google or whomever uh, is trying to push a, a, a standard, uh, the internet is going to try and do the right thing or what they think is the right thing. So I have a follow-up on that because I think, the interesting part, and uh, let, me, let me go into a few of the other standards that were introduced, and I'll come back to this. So after SPF, which kind of gave domain owners control, uh, Yahoo came out with something called domain keys. And domain keys were trying to solve a problem where uh, if a message is in transit, 
between two mail servers or you know several mail, mail servers, it's possible that that message could actually be altered in transit and then sent along to the, the recipient looking like nothing happened, but it's a completely different message. So domain keys came out to actually solve that problem. So you could believe that the message that someone sent is, is actually the, the same content that you received. And it uses uh, public and private keys, which are you know, registered in your, your DNS for your domain. Again, kind of like sender ID and SPF, it, it turned into a new spec called DKIM, um, which is, is kind of similar, has some subtleties. But now these days, like SPF and DKIM are really the main standards we use for building trust and authenticity around messages and email. What ended up happening is SPF is, uh, because we need backward compatibility, there were some limitations in some people accepting it and some people not. And then DKIM is based, is, is uses a domain, but you don't necessarily have to say which domain. You can sign a message with any domain when it goes into your messages. So a new standard came out called DMARC, which actually ties everything, and this is why it comes back to sender ID, everything back to the from address. So DMARC basically says, if I'm walmart.com and I'm sending an email from marketing at walmart.com and you're using DMARC, I can say, only accept messages from me that have SPF and DKIM enabled in my messages for marketing or you know, for Walmart, walmart.com in the from address. And I think all of this stuff is, is interesting and kind of difficult as well, because as this, these things have evolved, we've almost put band-aids on them. So, okay, SPF has these limitations, DKIM has these limitations. Let put, let's put DMARC on this right. to bring them together and solve them. <laughs> Just add one more layer. That's, like, that's how you do it. So Just now looking layer. back, yeah, and looking back, we have something like sender ID, which was based on the from address. And we're trying to almost bring sender ID, the the you know validity of send, uh, sender ID back with the introduction of DMARC. So I, sometimes I laugh at all the the stuff coming out because there's always a new protocol trying to with with DMARC. There's a, a new standard called ARC, which is trying to fix some of the limitations in DMARC. So <laughs> it's an evolving thing, and we're always trying to like you know learn from the the small thing where it's falling apart and fix it with something else. I have a smile on my face because I really, it really truly is like evolution, right? It's like, you know, short beaks are in favor now. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden the long beak comes back in and there's a reason for it to exist in, in the species, right? And it sounds like exactly that, right? With, you know, sender ID that's now kind of reemerging as something that is, you know, a favorable advantage to making sure that there's authenticity in the sending that's happening. So it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely onto something, Merrick. I mean, it, the 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 good people, the good senders around the world are uh, they do a thing, they try and improve the landscape a little bit, and then the spammers evolve a little bit, and they right. they sort of like they figure out a little way that they can skim a little money or this or that by by you know by cheating DKIM or by doing this or by doing that, and then you respond to it and, and escalate, and it's. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to say it's fun, but it's interesting. Certainly, we could go down any of these paths and explore, you know, any of these standards in great detail. I will certainly in the resources section of this episode include links to some literature we've put together. But while I have you guys on here, one of the things I want to do is just just get a sense of whether you guys see any any gaps that still need to be addressed with respect to security in email. Do either of you guys want to speak to that? Yeah, I can talk about that a little bit. As I said before, it kind of feels like a lot of these things are band-aids, but it's not, it's not all bad. I think DMARC is a really great direction uh, for where we're going to, to build trust in the email and to combat spam and, and you know, some of the other problems that revolve around email. The, one of the, the, the big benefits I see from it is really comes down to domain reputation, which we didn't talk about much, and it's based on... DKIM and SPF and DMARC. But what it does now is instead of before where, you know, sure you have spam, you, you send the, the really nasty emails to millions of people, but there's that gray area that also causes problems in email. You know, the, the marketing companies that are sending out to purchase lists and 
you know, people not being responsible for the emails they're sending from their domains. And previously, you could actually use, you know, you just switch to different IP addresses or different ESPs to send your email and it didn't matter. So you could send a bunch of junk and then move to the next ESP or change your IP addresses. What's happening now with the adoption of DMARC uh, on top of DKIM and SPF is, is domain reputation. So, you know, at Wildbit, we are, are actually building a reputation on our domain that follows us everywhere. And I think that's really strong because it means mm. now we have to we have an upkeep for that reputation, no matter which ESP we use, no matter where we go. And I think that's been one of the, the best evolutions for, you know, compliance and abuse and, and spam over the years, because now there's a responsibility of the sender to keep that reputation going. Hmm. Sounds like the, the reputation that sticks with you is something that can, can really improve overall sending uh, across the internet. So yeah, and, and those are the good things. So to get back to your, your question, what are the limitations? I think DMARC still has, you know, it still has to evolve a little bit to get the adoption that it needs. And there are parts of it where uh, DMARC actually gives you control in your, uh, in your DNS to say, to tell places like, or ISPs like Gmail or, or Yahoo or anyone else to only accept messages from us uh, that are signed with DKIM and have the IPs listed in SPF. And, but there are some, some gaps in it with email forwarding and, and uh, where DMARC actually breaks down and, and it's not completely accurate. So there's some new standards coming out. One is called ARC, and that's to fix some of the, the forwarding issues. And I think stuff like that is really important before we get more adoption on DMARC to then get more adoption on domain reputation. Andrew, do you have anything to add there? I'm happy to see the trend go more towards reputation also um, for a bunch of different reasons. But I think ultimately uh, what it does is it allows somebody that's going to accept mail to make their, make informed decisions around what they trust or don't trust. And they can do it more actively. So, you know, prior to that, you know, if you're talking about blacklists or whitelists or whatever else, those get updated whenever they get updated. And, you know, they're sort of like whatever the person that wrote that particular list is feeling, you know, depending on what list it is, that IP is going on there or not. And so uh, I think the move towards domain reputation and and looking at what the history is, is just going to help, uh, you know, over time, you know, Google obviously builds their own reputation models around everybody. And, and we've, if you're used email, I think you've benefited from that. So I think that that's just going to spread to to all the different ISPs and mailbox providers. I hope. I'm just interested to, you know, in terms of making sure that these things take hold. Do you think that ESPs um, have a responsibility? I mean, we're an ESP, obviously, but do we have a responsibility to enforce some of these these standards as they as they emerge? I think. Maybe not enforce, but one of the biggest issues of a lot of these standards and you know fighting abuse and building trust in the email is is really getting the adoption. And when it comes to ESPs or services or even the the inbox providers like you know Gmail, it's really important that we make it extremely easy for people to adopt these standards. The easier we can make it for people to understand and adopt these standards, the faster the adoption is going to be. And and really, you know the standard will survive and persist. We've always tried to push a lot of these standards very early. So we were very early in, in supporting DKIM. And one of the things we really wanted to do for new customers coming in is as soon as you set up your account, we take you directly to setting up your domain, your domain authentication with SPF and DKIM. And while we don't enforce it, we make the process extremely simple so we can get more adoption in our customer base for people who use DKIM and SPF. And we've actually done the same for DMARC. So when you're setting up your account in Postmark, uh, we give you the DNS records and, and the ways to set up DKIM, SPF, uh, and then a custom return path so you can be DMARC compliant. And as kind of a side project, I think uh, it was a Hack Week project a while ago, we realized that 
DMARC reporting is one of the most valuable pieces of DMARC, of the, the DMARC standard. So we created like a side project where not only do we support it from a sender side, but we allow you to, through our service, to set up DMARC reporting and actually give you a weekly email to see how uh, your email is being received uh, and what your DMARC alignment is to different ISPs. So I think it's really our, our responsibility as email service providers to educate our customers to you know, maybe in a way enforce it because the more people who can you know, uh, sign their messages and everything else, the, the, the more receivers see that as being adopted. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely our, our responsibility to make it happen. So it's interesting. So maybe enforce isn't the right word, but it sounds like we have gone to great lengths to try and make it super simple and straightforward for our customers to adopt these latest standards. Yeah. And that's the key. I think the important part is making sure we make it as easy as possible because the more people, even in our customer base who have authentication set up, who use DMARC, it actually makes it easier on us to have good compliance and and abuse standards for our own system. So we can, Hmm fight off spammers and people who are abusing the system. So certainly a symbiotic relationship there. Yep. So before we wrap things up, I'd like to just spend a few minutes uh, exploring uh, some of the things that you guys foresee coming next with respect to email or things that are just beginning to emerge now. Perhaps, Andrew, we could start with you. Well, I think, I think um, if it isn't already a theme, I, you know, it's going to be by the end of this is... Uh, you know, we, we've seen a bunch of things start to evolve really recently uh, around the idea of adding list unsubscribe headers and, and those sorts of things, which have been nice to in, improve the uh, the overall experience that people have in like email clients. So, you know, if you have an iPhone or whatever, you get a mail that you don't like, you know, those headers being added now allows you a quick and easy way to unsubscribe, for, for example. Um, I think it's it also is interesting to see things like... Um, Google AMP uh, coming out and and seeing where that might go. I know it's um, it's controversial and and there's a lot of opinions about the motivation around doing it. Um, but I have seen at least a few cases where there is actually a really nice user experience that you can get out of of adopting that uh, that format uh, for email. If you don't mind me asking, Google AMP is um, Google AMP is a I, I don't want to go too far into describing it because I know enough about it to be dangerous, but not so much that I'm an expert. Um, but Google AMP is basically a, a format that Google has published that allows you to deliver mail um, with a slightly different format than HTML. So one example that I think is really interesting is, um, you know, an account confirmation email you might get where normally you'd get the confirmation email, click the button that says activate account, and then you end up on a website and you read read a page there and close the tab and go through all that. Uh, AMP provides enough machinery to allow you to do that all within your email client, so that you don't oh, wow. have to, you know, leave that experience. So, I mean, it is uh, it's definitely going to be a while to see that really roll out and, and what all the implications of it are. And I'm sure that there's going to be more than enough security implications to keep everybody busy. But the the idea that that's you know maybe something that email could do and you know, the next couple of years is interesting to me. Didn't mean to derail you there. If there were some other things that you see that are likely to emerge in the future here. You know, one thing we talked about a little bit is that there's sort of, you know, DMARC is something that has been around for, I don't know, at least five years, probably. I don't know exactly how long it's been around, but it started out as something where you could monitor how things were, you know, like the you know, whether you had mail coming from weird places that you didn't know about or, or those sorts of things. And you didn't actually cause ISPs to stop delivery or those sorts of things. You can monitor it, see what was going on, and then make adjustments. And then finally, the last step is going to be to tell ISPs to reject mail, okay, that isn't authenticated. And so we're right at the, the, the cusp of that being something that's common practice. And I think that that's going to be a really major improvement for the experience that, that people have, uh, you know, with any, you know, reducing sp- uh, spam and phishing and all those problems that uh, hopefully that, that standard solves. Chris, I don't want to leave you out here. Are there some things that you see? Yeah. And actually building on what Andrew just said, 
there is a new standard that I think Gmail just started accepting maybe in a, a, a pilot program or something, but it's called Bimmy. And what it does is if you if you follow certain standards, like if you have a reject record or a quarantine record in DMARC um, and you add a certain DNS record, and I, I think you may have to apply for it, but it basically ties your your corporate branding or whatever branding you have to your email. So when that, that, that does is actually build trust with the people who are receiving your email. And hmm. I think that's just like another step. Something like that could actually, because it is branding and it's, I think it has some value on the marketing side, a standard like that could actually push people to be DMARC compliant more. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that, um, how that evolves and, and gets adopted. And then the, the other interesting things, um, like I said earlier, blacklists were like a really prominent um, you know, thing you had to be aware of uh, years ago, and they still are. They come up now and then, and you have to be aware of them. Um, you know, uh, Spam House is still a very uh, prevalent uh, blacklist, um, and you, know, you definitely don't want to get on, on any of those. But as things shift, it's going to go more toward domain reputation, and I'm I'm really excited to see that happen. And I'm also curious if, just like IP addresses, where you could actually there were services like SenderScore where you can go out and look up the reputation of an IP address. Uh, I'm kind of hopeful that in the future you'll be able to see the reputation of a domain for email sending. It would be really neat if that's like almost like a, a transparent thing. Um, there's a, a lot of issues in that too, but um, and then the, another side of it is we're we're all used to you know clicking the this is spam uh, button in our email clients, and what we've seen, you know, over the years we use that as a metric to fight against spam. Like, what are your spam rates, and how much spam is a customer? Uh, you know, how many spam complaints are they receiving? But as more and more email goes to Google and Gmail who doesn't actually support, uh, you know, sending reports, spam reports back to receiver or senders. It, it'll be interesting to see how, how we use that metric and, and how that metric changes. So, you know, whether spam rates in five years are really going to be something we look at, or did it get completely replaced by something like domain reputation? One last thing that I'd like to just explore a little bit there would be, I mean, I'm just thinking through that, what you just brought up where, you know, spam complaints may not be the thing, but it sounds like maybe things like domain reputation, but also perhaps things like engagement, right? Whether people are really like engaging with those emails is going to become more and more a metric that ISPs and, and, and receivers are going to use to decide, make decisions about whether mail should even make it to the inbox at all, right? So I, I to anticipate that more and more machine learning and AI and things that are going to start to process all of that data, that's going to start to inform those things as well. Yeah. Absolutely. I think something else to think about with engagement, though, is as you know, privacy uh, becomes more of a concern, will that change as well? Like, will open tracking and link tracking, you know, five years, 10 years from now be something that's even acceptable, right? So, and then that we use a lot of the engagement data from open tracking and link tracking. So I'm curious to see how that evolves and how kind of the privacy rules change in that. Anything else you want to add, Andrew, before we wrap this up? Um, I guess I, you, I don't really want to do a lot of predictions, but I, I do, I think there is going to be one interesting one that I'm not sure we have, we've solved yet. Um, and that's going to be that, you know, we talked about privacy between servers, but we still don't really have privacy, you know, after you're on one server or the other with mail. And I think as customers become aware of that, they're going to want to uh, have that available to them where they can, they know that their communication over email is completely private from their email client all the way to the other side. Hmm. Um, there's some standards around that, but they're um, just like every year is going to be the, the year of desktop Linux. Uh, you know, this is also, a, you know, those standards are adopted by the people that are, uh, you know, know to pay attention to it. Um, but eventually, hopefully, it'll become something that's more commonplace. So 
What about holograms? 2030 holograms? Yeah, there is something in the RFC process right now for holograms. I didn't <laughs> talk about it, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Well, I think it's it's time for us to wrap this up. Andrew and Chris, thank you so much for, for being with me today. Yeah, thank you. Glad, glad we can do it. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us today for this episode of Talking Email with Postmark. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to receive updates on all future episodes. And be sure to check out the resources section of this episode where you'll find interesting articles on many of the topics that we touched on today. Lastly, if you're ever looking to improve email deliverability or reporting for your business or side project, be sure to reach out to us at support at postmarkapp.com and we'd be more than happy to help. See you soon.